This is Shop Talk Radio, episode 21, with Yal Cohen. Welcome to Shop Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nick Onkin, and on this show, we bring you inspiring guests to dive underneath the hood of the creative entrepreneurial lifestyle to bridge the gap between art, commerce, and inspiration. Today, we've got the beautiful and amazing Yael Cohen on Shop Talk Radio. Yael is the founder and creator of an organization called Fuck Cancer that was started to raise awareness for early breast cancer detection and now for many other types of cancer. Interesting piece of information, 90% of all cancers are curable if caught in stage one, and that's not a very widely known fact. It's pretty amazing how we glaze through life without even paying attention to these kinds of things. On this episode, we get to hear the story of how her mom was diagnosed with breast cancer and how it changed both of their worlds. What I love about Yell is that we get to see her amazing heart as she's taking care of her mother through the journey. And in turn, we get to see how this organization was birthed. On the show, we talk about creating a brand in the nonprofit space and how it makes you stand out. We also learn different types of food that can actually help you uh, prevent cancer in your own life. We learn how to socially interact with somebody who has cancer. And as, as funny as this sounds, it can be a very awkward situation and we have to learn how to manage it. We also learn how choosing a name like Fuck Cancer can also work for you or against you in your brand. So many more things. We also did a uh, portrait shoot out in LA while I was out there when we recorded the episode of Yale. And you can check that out over at shoptalkradio.com slash EP21. So with that, get ready to get inspired and let's jump in. Let's just get started. We got Yael Cohen in the studio today. Um, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. So let's just get started. And why don't you give us a little bit of background on your story, um, what you created, Fuck Cancer, the, the organization, and kind of give us the background. I started a charity called Fuck Cancer almost five years ago now. October will be five years old, which is nuts to think about. Um, and it all happened really organically. You know, mm. I was in finance. I loved my job. I thought what I did was really cool. Uh, and then my mom got cancer and everything changed. Um, and I just didn't care as much. And I learned more than I ever wanted to know about the cancer space. Uh, and it was apparent that there were some holes that needed filling mm. and there were some things that weren't being done that I thought needed to. And so we started Fuck Cancer, you know, and it started because I got my mom a t-shirt made. Mm. It said, Fuck Cancer plain and simple. And um, my mom is this adorable little like polite blonde thing that doesn't say the word fuck, never mind wear it. <laughs> so when, you know, when I first gave it to her, it was something that I thought she'd wear at home. And much to my surprise, as soon as she was well enough to get her hands over her head so I could put a t-shirt on her, it's all she wanted to wear. Wow. Um, and she wore it 
while she was recovering, she, she wore it anytime she left the house. And yeah. I can now see, obviously, that it was so cathartic for her. It was empowering. It was, you know, defeated and defiant. It was brave and vulnerable. It was all of these, you know, really powerful things. Um, yeah. And what was more powerful was how people responded. And so it was total strangers hugging her and high-fiving her and wanting to hear her story and tell theirs. Yeah. And it just became really apparent that it resonated far beyond just my family and we needed to do good with it. That's awesome. So what, what was it like getting the news that your mom had cancer? You know, we had it uh, happen a little bit differently than usual. Hmm. My father was traveling for work and my mom had gone for her annual mammogram and we were just chatting uh, on the phone one day and she said, you know, they came back and they asked me to come for another one. They think it's just a shadow. Um, and I was like, okay, well, you know, book in for your, your next one. And so she, they, you know, they went back very quickly um, to, to redo the mammogram. And uh, then her and I were hanging out on the weekend and she said, you know, they think there's still something. They want me to come back. And that's when the, the you know, the switch flips and I go into, you know, obsessive daughter mode um, and, go, and started arranging for everything we needed. So from the diagnostics to figuring out what next steps were if it was cancer and um, ended up going down to get a, she needed a stereotactically guided biopsy hmm. um, to see. And, you know, there's a whole various schools of thought about whether you do um, the imaging first or you did the biopsy first. And we took her down to, to get some imaging done and sitting in, you know, in the little room with all of the, the scans plastered up on the walls and you could just see it plain as day. Um, and so we were there with one of her doctors and my dad had come back into town and that was when he looked at her and said, you have breast cancer. Wow. Uh, and so we knew before, I think we, we knew that it wasn't just a shadow and we were operating on the assumption that it was something and we need, you know, got our ass in gear and figured out what we needed to do and yeah. learned a hell of a lot really quickly because, you know, we talk around cancer a lot and yeah. but we don't actually talk about it until until it comes close to home and then it's all you can talk about and it's all you want to know about and there's so much to know and it's so damn confusing yeah so did you how much did you know before nothing i mean nothing. it was it, cancer was a word it wasn't it wasn't an experience before this yeah i couldn't even imagine that's crazy so what was the process from there how did how did from when you found out and then how did, you know, going through till she, she beat it? Uh, we had a, you know, a, it, it was multiple years of, of different surgeries and different uh, scares. Um, but mom is a fighter. She's tough as hell. Um, the first surgery was a bilateral radical mastectomy. Wow. Um, and she's a, a trooper. We laughed our way through that. We laughed our way through everyone since. Yeah. Um, and now we just stay on top of early detection. You know, she knows her body and she knows if something changes. We make sure that we are actively looking for cancer instead of waiting to find it. Yeah. So is it um, something that it easily comes back? Depends on the type of cancer. Mm. Um, but yes, in, in a lot of cases, it's not easy, but there's there's recurrence is always something you're concerned with. And that's something we deal with in our community where, you know, so often when a patient becomes cancer free or they're in remission or they're cured, um, everyone expects them to be so thrilled and they forget yeah. that not only are you left dealing with the physical and, and emotional repercussions of cancer, but more so every time you sneeze for the rest of your life, you're, you're scared of what it is. Mm. Um, and those are things we just don't talk about. 
yeah, stuff that we take for granted. Definitely. Easily. So from there, how did you start the the nonprofit? I, you know, went in and registered a charity <laughs> <laughs> um, and sat down with some really great advisors and mentors and figured out what we were going to do. And if, the first thing I did actually was spend a lot of time digging into other organizations because ideally I would have loved to just support one. Yeah. You know, I think that we are so obsessed with recreating the wheel, but in my book, improving someone else's wheel is more, just as much, if not more of a win in a lot of cases. Yeah. Um, but no one was doing what I thought needed to be done. No one was, you know, focusing on the youth, focusing on early detection, ho- harnessing technology and humor and all of the things that make cancer, you know, the like rich experience it is. It's not one dimensional. Um, and we need to start treating it that way. We need to give people a different way to engage with it that's not as scary. We need to give people a way to engage with cancer before they have it so mm. they can learn about early detection. Yeah. Um, and so we uh, we figured out what we were going to do and we, we hit the ground running. Awesome. So it, now tell me like it, like how the organization works and how you promote it and or early detection and um, how the process goes. So we we have three main strategic initiatives, early detection, prevention, and communication. Hmm. And so we started with this foundation of early detection, and that was very purposeful. Firstly, it's what saved my mom's life, and I will be for you know eternally grateful for. But more so, it was active rather than passive. It was something you could do. We were going to teach you how to look for cancer instead of just find it, how to know your family history, how to know what cancers you're at highest risk for, how to you know have a conversation with your parents more so because. We were focusing on the youth. Mm. And when you talk to the youth, they're obviously not the highest risk demographic, but our parents are. Mm. And it was so strange to me that nobody was activating our generation. We're fucking amazing. We have access to so much information, to more information than any generation ever has. And we teach our parents more than any generation ever has. Mm -hmm. You know, we always joke, instead of just teaching them what a Kardashian is, teach them something that could save their lives. And so we did. We, We gave more than we asked for. We gave information. We gave community. Um, and then we, we layered on top of that. We layered on early detection. Mm-hmm. And that was really simply the idea that there's a lot we can't control when it comes to cancer. Mm-hmm. But we should be doing what we can to stack the cards in our favor. And that means, you know, healthy lifestyles, being aware of what you put into and onto your body. It, you know, and how you use your body, it all directly affects your overall health. And we have to take responsibility for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we layered on what I'm most proud of. And there was always this foundation of this visceral emotional response to the words fuck cancer. That's why people came to us. We were raw. We were real. We let them be brave and vulnerable simultaneously. Mm. We let them ask questions they didn't think they were allowed to. We let them have feelings they didn't think they were allowed to. Yeah. Uh, we didn't censor the experience, which is so often what actually happens. And we never told people what to say or do or think or feel, but they started asking us. And so we built resources. We went through thousands of pages of peer-reviewed medical journals. And we built resources for the things that nobody's talking about. Mm. Things like, how do you tell your mom you have cancer? How do you tell your you know, six-year-old son that they have cancer in a way that doesn't make them feel like they've done something wrong? Because so often, you know, we like to explain to children they have bad cells, but our, you know, your treatment's going to fix it. Yeah. Who tells a, a child they have something bad inside them? They think they've done something wrong. And so the simple shift of telling them they have confused cells and their medicine helps them learn how to act. Wow. Is, it's something so simple, but really important. And yeah. so we created resources that were for the things that nobody was talking about. And sometimes we just broke it down for you. We talked to you, not at you. So we're so often told to eat 
you know, kale and blueberry and salmon because they have antioxidants. We didn't tell people what to do. We told them why. We told them what an antioxidant is. Mm. What does eating dairy or sugar or meat or alcohol do in your body and to your body? And then we let you make your own decisions because we trust in our community. They're adults and they can do whatever the hell they want. Yeah. But we're going to arm them with the information to hopefully make the right decisions. Um, and so, you know, we came to this beautiful place where we had, you know, really three really strong areas that we focused on. And then we joked that we hit puberty. And I was like, shit. We're not this, you know, young little startup anymore and we're not an empire yet. We're in that phase where you're growing and you're trying to institutionalize the magic. You yeah. go from this irreverent, disruptive organization and then you want to put structure and strategy in place that lets you scale. But you have to work really hard at making sure that you don't lose your your personality and, and heart and soul in the process. Yeah. Um, and so that's what we've been focusing on a lot lately. And, you know, some of that means that we're doing really stuff that I'm super excited about in, in prevention. We're doing a lot with vaccines. Wow. Um, I know that, and that's most people's response. Wow. And yeah. like, what about vaccines and cancer? <laughs> um, and it's HPV and flu. And, you know, our whole thing is that we don't have a ton of money. We run really lean and we're all about the outliers. We're all about, hmm. you know, the smoking gun in the same way that smoking cessation has had a bigger impact on cancer outcomes in the last 50 years than any research breakthrough. And so if we could get people to change in action and have a huge impact in the cancer space, mm. that's so much more interesting to us than having to raise a billion dollars and hope that it does something. Um, and so there's a lot of data to suggest, to prove, <laughs> right. um, that we need to get people vaccinated. HPV is directly linked to cervical cancer, obviously, as well as head, neck, and throat cancer. Wow. Um, and the, the flu vaccine as well. Every time you get the flu, it increases your chances of getting cancer because it's systemic inflammation. No and kidding. So, yeah, I mean, all these things that, that we're, we're learning and trying to figure out uh, what the best way to use that information is and how to keep people safe and, and uh, give them all the tools and they need. Yeah. So how do you deploy this information and get it out to the public and, and who is kind of engaging with, with the organization? The interwebs. The interweb? I've <laughs> the never interwebs. the internet. I've um, never heard of it. We are. I know it's it's new. You'll 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 catch on. Um, we're digital. You know, it was partly out of necessity when we started. We just had no money, and I we didn't have the money to go and have you know big events and offices, and so we we built online. We did what we could, yeah. which was you know one of the best things we could have done because it gave everybody access to us. So whether you were on one side of the world or the other, and whether it was the morning or the night, when you needed us, we were there. You had access to our community and to our information. And so because of that, we built a really wide net, you know, yeah. globally of, of a community. But um, in terms of demographic, when we first started, we chose to focus on the youth. And we called it Gen Y. Mm. So it was millennials, um, 17 to 35 year olds. We obviously weren't focusing on their cancer as much as their parents because mm -hmm. we were teaching our parents and we were taking care of them when they got ill. And as we matured, we saw that we were hitting a much wider net. And what we were calling Gen Y was actually what we now call Gen C, Generation Communication. And it's those that are comfortable in the digital spe space. They excel at you know, self-education, at communication and consumption online. You know, There were people much older and much younger than 17 yeah. to 35-year-olds that were craving authentic conversation online. Yeah. And so we expanded to our focus to be Gen C. And so we build online. We have a very, you know, smart, funny voice because I think you have to, when you're talking to the youth or to that, dem that demographic, mm -hmm. you have to be authentic and raw. Um, and we 
we work really hard at straying away from what we call poverty porn. And I think so much of the time in the chancer, in the charity space in general, we're drawn to to trying to guilt people into taking an action. It's you know, mm. it's the the little African child with the distended stomach and the flies around them. Donate now, he needs food. You might take action because you feel so damn guilty, but you'll do it once. Yeah. We don't want people to do something because they feel like shit. We want them to do it because they feel awesome and they are empowered and they enjoy being a part of our community because then they come back. And so we work really hard to make it being a part of this community fucking awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So how did you, and go back, like where did you learn how to build the structure and build build the nonprofit? You said you had some mentors and... Figure it out, man. You know, I, <laughs> I, I didn't know before. Um, I read a lot. I asked a lot of questions. I got lawyers and I, you know, legally, how do I do this? Yeah. Um, you figure it out. You know, I get asked that often, like, what's the process for doing this? And I think it's different for everyone. Yeah. Because uh, we all have different needs and goals and abilities. Yeah. And, and you just have to make sure that, firstly, you're you're legally sound and you're, you know, <laughs> right, you get right, in trouble right. and that you're doing good shit and helping people. Yeah. And whatever your path to that is, good for you. Yeah. I mean, you know, but there's, there's also, I mean, I get asked too, um, from people, they're like, how do I start? Like, they want to learn how to start a, a nonprofit because I'm involved with nonprofits as well. And people are always curious because they like have a bleeding heart for something, but yet they're like, I, I don't even know how to start. You know what? I'll give you the best, the best advice that I, I could give. Support somebody. Unless mm. there's nobody doing what you think needs to be done, find someone who's doing awesome work and support them. Mm. Because ultimately we do so much so much more and so much better when we do it together. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Like collaboration, I feel like is the biggest hundred percent growth and success. So how did your, how do you feel like your background and did your background in finance help you at all? Or did you, did that add to how you built, built uh, the organization? You know what? It, <laughs> this is one of those funny things I was chatting to a friend about the other day. And I think that when we when we're young we're told we can be like a fireman a ballerina a doctor or a lawyer and you're like shit like which one of those am i going to be and then you go to college and in the first day they're like what's your major what are you going to be when you grow up and you're like shit let me choose quickly and then you change your mind and you feel like you failed you know i was in physiology and then i changed to political science and i remember sitting there crying to my parents that i didn't want to be a doctor anymore and they're mm -hmm. like that's cool kid you do you do you like whatever makes you happy? <laughs> yeah. And I thought I, I thought I failed so terribly, and then I graduated in political science and promptly took a job in finance. And again, I was like, shit, did I just waste four years? Like, oh man. And all of these things where I thought I changed my mind and thought I'd failed turned out to to take me exactly where I needed to go. So I have an understanding of basic physiology. Yeah. I have an understanding of political science. I have an understanding of finance, and all of those things allowed me to build an organization that was well-rounded. Yeah. Uh, and a big part of it was just not being afraid to ask. I ask for help all the time because I sure as hell don't have all the answers. And if somebody's willing to share their time and their experience and their brain with me, I'm going to be grateful and take it. Yeah. So here's another question that, I mean, people, people come to me with this as well is like, how do you approach people that you want to mentor you or that you want to pick their brain yeah. for not, I actually like, I can't, that, that, that whole term is just so off now for me, but yeah. like in terms of like learning from other people, how did you go about asking people for their time? So one of my, you know, the, the mentors I spend the most time with, and I'm so grateful that he gives me even a minute of his, of his day is uh, Dr. David Agus. And David is 
unbelievable. He's incredibly well-versed in the space uh, as well as realistic. You know, he doesn't got his head in a book. He understands yeah. the, the reality of the science and the practicality of it. Um, and we first met, and I don't even know if he'll remember this, at TED Med years ago. Mm. Uh, and we got introduced and, you know, he was politely shook my hand and then moved on. And I was like, damn it. And I quietly stalked his work. <laughs> um, and then a mutual friend uh, was chatting to me and said, Do you know David Agus, he, you guys should chat. I think he, you know, you could be really useful and helpful to each other and you'd, you'd um, get a lot out of it. And I was like, I'd love an introduction. And so he email introduced us. And I jumped on right away and I responded, great, let's set up a time to meet. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and I was, I was, you know, upfront and honest about the fact that I really respected what he did and I would love to learn from him. Um, and it turns out that he really respected what we do and has helped us be better and smarter. And he, you know, instead of applauding us, he pushes us. He asks us really difficult questions mm. that make us so much better. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, Thanks, David. <laughs> <laughs> that's hugely important. <laughs> yeah. Um, so also going back to when you found out from your life before until you, and then you found out your mom got cancer, like what was the internal dialogue going on and, and how did that completely where did you come from and then what did you shift into and turn you know I mean that's a huge it's a huge change I mean I know you said it was it was a very you just lost care for everything um you gain perspective maybe you gain something as well in the process you gain perspective of what really matters um and all of a sudden the the you know arbitrary bullshit that we cloud ourselves with just didn't matter I was obsessed with saving my mom's life. And I thought that it was my job because you're so helpless, right? There's nothing we can do. We can keep them happy and comfortable and we can hope that we help make the right decisions, but I'm not a doctor. And, yeah. and so I became really, I mean, God obsessed is the right word, obsessed with learning everything I could. I read every book, blog, and article I could get my hands on. I was on every discussion board. I wanted to know not only from a medical perspective what we should do, what were our options, what did other people do? I wanted to know from a human perspective as well, how did I keep mom comfortable? What do we take to the hospital after her surgery? What are the things nobody's going to tell me? Mm. And that was, again, the foundation of where our communication resources came from because, it, you know, I guess the best story of, of this is um, one of our first board members and a dear friend of mine, uh, Samantha Walker, who passed away last year, actually. Mm. Uh, Sammy had appendix cancer, and it spread in her internal cavity, and they had to basically go and remove all non-essential organs, um, which, uh, you know, as a young 30-year-old woman, included her reproductive organs. Wow. And she woke up from surgery in, in a hot sweat, and she, was, she thought she had a fever. She was freaking out. She was, you know, she, thought she was on fire, on fire, and they're checking her vitals and trying to figure out what's going on. And finally, an elderly nurse comes over and leans down and quietly takes her hand and says, Honey, you're having a hot flash. And it was something so simple that nobody thought to tell her, hey, you're going to go into surgically induced menopause and that can happen the minute you wake up. Instead, her first experience after waking up from this, this huge, huge surgery is fear and panic. Uh, and so we wanted, to, we wanted to be the place where you can come and find out the things nobody's going to tell you or that only another patient can tell you because sometimes truly they're the only ones who know. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, that's... I couldn't even imagine going through this. I've never, I've never had anybody in my life <laughs> go through this. So I couldn't even imagine. I hope but, you don't have to. <laughs> how would you p explain to people to 
where to get started with prevention and, and to jump into this? I mean, the first, you know, first things first is the, sh- the stuff we all know. It's about living a healthy, active lifestyle, being aware of what you put into your body. And I mean, don't be psychotic about it, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is easy to, to get psychotic, but it's about eating clean, whole foods, you know, simple rules of grocery shopping, like shop on the perimeters of the grocery store. Yeah. Um, if you don't know what it used to be, maybe don't eat it or limit your consumption. If it doesn't expire, that's terrifying. Don't put it in your body. <laughs> um, you know, but again, if you're going to have a treat, know that it's, enjoy it. It's an indulgence. Don't think that you can't mm-hmm. um, be active, but mostly know your body, be aware of it. Um, you know, when we talk about your monthly self-exams, so many people are, are, are think that it's about looking for something. It's not necessarily looking for something every time. It's about knowing your body. So if something changes, you're going to know. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the worst things that you can put in your body or that you can eat? I mean, and chemicals, anything processed. And again, <laughs> if it doesn't expire, if it comes in plastic or tinfoil, you know, probably not so great for you. <laughs> um, smoking, obviously. Get your head out of your ass. Straight out. <laughs> yeah. It's really the only way to say it. You know exactly what you're doing. Um, binge drinking is one that's interesting, actually. There's, really? there's a lot of data to show that, I mean, obviously, we know you get sick from it. So obviously, it's not good for your body. Right. Um, but being aware of not only what you put on in your body, but onto your body. A lot of, you know, lotions and sunscreens, we forget that you can put a medication on topically. You can put a medication on your skin and your body absorbs it. So it's also absorbing all of the lotions you put on every day. So a small shift, like switching to clean lotions and laundry detergents, because those things are on your skin all day. Hmm. can have a big impact. And how do you know, how do you even know which ones are good, which ones are bad? You know, a lot of them like to brand themselves as clean, which helps a little bit, um, or green. But there's a website, Mm. environmentalworkinggroup.org, EWG. And know. you can go and look at everything, everything from food to household products to cleaning products to cause, you know, cosmetics. And they're going to give you the ratings for health and environment. They tell you what products you know, are in it that could be carcinogenic and not good for your body or not good for the environment. Yeah. Uh, so it's a great place to go and kind of get a little, a little litmus test of, of everything. That yeah. You're yeah. That's great. I'll have to check that out because it's, it's so, it's so hard to know what's good, what's not. Like it's, it's really difficult and it gets super overwhelming. And that's why we say, start with something small, you know, start with the things that you have, you know, contact with or access to. Mm -hmm. So if it's touching your skin all day, switching laundry detergents is not a huge, you know, it's not super difficult. It's not a huge cost. Yeah. Um, switching from, you know, some, you're not going to buy everything organic, but things like strawberries and cucumbers, those are the ones that are more important than an orange to buy organic because you peel an orange skin off. Yeah. Uh, so there's little tricks that can help you know when it's really necessary to make a shift or to splurge and when it's not. Yeah. Now, are there any foods or anything that are actually good and preventative? I mean, there's lots of foods. Food was, food was the original medicine, right? So right. It's, uh, it's how we nourish ourselves and it's about thinking yeah. of it that way. So whole foods, eat whole foods, things that came from the earth. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, don't go and fry kale and think that kale, you know, your fried kale chips are healthy. Eat, <laughs> right. eat real kale. <laughs> yeah. Um, eat lots of different colors and lots yeah. of, and know where it came from. Local is, is great as well. And it's one of those things that I used to roll my eyes at and I still do sometimes depending on how much <laughs> patience and time I have for it that day. But, um, the longer something travels to get you, the more the nutrients degrade. Mm. So if you can eat local, why not? Yeah, I mean, it's the best, it's the it's the most purest form. Exactly. So juice a lot then. 
to some extent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, and there's, I don't know, I, I guess further than that, you know, there's stuff that's like just good to like eat on a daily basis and in a way of, of being healthy, but are there any like specific foods that are proactive in prevention? I mean, from if you know, if you talk to any marketers, yes, kale, blueberry, acai, salmon, um, you know, all of these are antioxidant rich superfoods. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's important. Antioxidants are, are really great for your body and help fight free radicals. Um, but I think the one, the easiest thing we can all do, squeeze lemon in your water. Really? It's alkalizing. No kidding. So save you some time and some money. Squeeze some lemon in your water. And just just one little squeeze. Yeah. As much as you want. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Good to know. So now the next step is is prevention. Early detection. Early Wait. detection. <laughs> yeah. Prevention. Early detection. Um, what now? What are the steps to employ that? So that's simply just about knowing your family history, so that you know what cancers you're at highest risk for, and you can know what their earliest warning signs are because. All cancers have some sort of early warning signs, and some are much harder to find than others. Um, but if you know, and, and some of them are seemingly benign or highly embarrassing. So if you know what they are, you can watch for them. And when it's just one, you might not be as alarmed. But if you have a bunch of these symptoms and you're not feeling well, it's then you know, go and talk to your doctor. Yeah. Um, it just gives you a little bit more information to make better decisions. Um, and, you know, that's, it's, it's a difficult one because... We want to help people find cancer as early as they can, but mm-hmm. obviously that's not always the case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to be proactive and the only way to do that is to keep, keep regular, keep regular tabs on it. Yeah. And we're doing the best we can and, and with the information we have and it's as, yeah. as long as we're all working towards it. That's awesome. I love how you guys are doing such like creating such a, a shift in language. And where did that idea come from? Which language particularly? Well, and just the positive. <laughs> Other than fuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, even that, just like the, the counteractive to what you would normally think and like the shifting into positivity. and It was, you know, so much of it was just so intuitive. And I think it's also intuitive with the way our generation tends to, or maybe just our, you know, specific sex of generation tends to respond to things. Mm-hmm. Um, I would much rather want to do something than feel obliged to do it. Uh, and I think that when it comes to the cancer space in general, it's... It's heavy and it's dark. And we think that, you know, you're a human and you get cancer and you have this full range of emotions and all of a sudden you get sick and we chop off the good half and we expect you to just have the negative emotions. But you're still human and, and you still get to have all of those emotions. Yeah. You know, and humor played such a large role in how our family coped that I wanted to make sure that we didn't take that away from people and more so that we told them it was okay because it's super un-PC to say, but there are parts of cancer that are funny and that's awesome because you know laughing is such good medicine and when you've lost your sense of humor you've lost it all but there are things that are so uncomfortable or confusing or awkward that all you can do is laugh and that's great so we wanted to give people something that was that was authentic and Mm -hmm. in that authenticity came positivity because there are going to be days when you aren't positive yeah and that's okay and there are going to be days when you're super positive and that's okay too and i think that what we were seeing was a lot of false positivity. It was the silver lining, you know, mm. it was like, I found purpose in my pain. And, and sometimes you do, and that's fucking awesome, but there's so much more to it. Yeah. And we wanted to make sure that people were exploring all of that because it's not healthy to just put on a brave face. You're fighting the fight of your life and things are changing drastically and you are dealing with a lot. 
Yeah. And you deserve to have love and support through that authentically, real love and support for what you're actually going through, not what you're showing people. Mm. I like that. I mean, and that's, how do you, and how would you dive into that, like authenticity, you know, because it's easy to say, yeah, <laughs> but like, how do you, how does one dive into that authenticity and, and be authentic about what they're thinking and saying? So we try to lead by example, obviously. And that means that sometimes what we say is not perfectly crafted or what you'd expect to come from a cancer organization, but more so we ask questions. We ask a lot of questions because so often we're scared to ask patients questions. Mm. We ask the, how are you doing? I'm here if you need anything. And it's that voice and that like, kind of uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, But we ask real questions. We ask, you know, how, how is your marriage doing? Because when a couple loses a child to cancer, the divorce rate is I think 80%. Wow. And nobody talks about it. Um, you know, we ask about how, you know, how you're adjusting to the changes in your body. How are you having a hard time finding people to talk about what you're actually going through this, you know, going through it? Because, um, a lot of the time we forget that if I'm the patient and you're my family and my friends, I might struggle to talk to you about what I'm actually going through because I don't think you understand, or I don't want to burden you, or I don't know how to bring it up. Hmm. Um, and so find giving them, we give them a cancer family, we call it giving you a community that understands what you're going through, where you don't have to worry about, you know, your pre-existing baggage of your relationships or whatever it may be. And you can just share with each other and be vulnerable and raw and um, support each other through some of the hardest days of your lives. Yeah. Was, you know, that's one of the things I love most about our community is we have people from all over that have never met and probably never will that are there for each other day and night. When they fall apart, they piece each other back together and they go and do it again the next day. That's amazing. So how now it's interesting because I know this is something I struggled with too. It's, it's that uncomfortable feeling coming from the other side of like when somebody does have something bad like this happen or finds out this news, what are, what are some ways that you can engage that person and, and break that uncomfortable awkwardness. So we have resources for that on our website. Mm. We have infographics, which are awesome and very specific to relationships. So you can check out based on, you know, your relationship to the patient or to the caregiver. Um, But a lot of it is just, some of it's getting out of your own way, being willing to ask questions and remembering that they're still the same person they were before. Mm -hmm. They still have the same interests. They still have the same sense of humor. They still, you know, are the same person. And so don't just talk about their cancer and don't not talk about their cancer. Mm. Um, be open to what they need. And so sometimes they're going to want to talk and, and sometimes they're really not, but don't, um, don't avoid it and don't dwell on it. Yeah. You know, take, take lead from, from the patient cause everybody's different. Yeah. Um, but be willing to be uncomfortable because you're going to be, you're going to be guilty and confused and, and all of these emotions because you, you don't understand and that's okay yeah. until any of us go through it, we can't understand. I run a cancer organization and I can never understand at this point in my life what it's like to have cancer. And that's okay. Yeah. I, I open myself up to, to bear your weight. I'm here to support in whatever way you need me. Mm-hmm. And that's different from person to person. Yeah. So how does one get over themselves? Open yourself up. Be willing to be uncomfortable. Be willing to, to have the silence. To know that you're not, there's not always a right thing to say. There's a lot of wrong things to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you don't always have to have an answer because you're not expected to. Yeah. Again, you you haven't been through this. You're just there to love and support unconditionally and to authentically support. Don't offer empty help. 
figure out what they need help with. You know, if whether that's bringing their schoolwork home, putting food in the fridge, picking the kids up from school, help, you know, lean in and, and offer um, support in, in their physical lives as well as their emotional. Yeah. Sometimes they're going to need to vent. Sometimes they're just going to need company and sometimes they're going to need space. Mm. Wow. So going back to growing up, like what, what were some of the values and the mindsets that your parents brought you up with? Because I, f- I feel like a very emotionally intelligent and strong person. And it's it seems to have like carried you through all of this. And so I feel like there's a lot of things that your parents probably have taught you growing up. I have a, an a awesome family, an unbelievable family. And we moved a lot when I was mm. growing up. And I think that has shaped who I am in a big way. Um, I'm from South Africa. And mm. we moved every two years until I was a teenager, um, countries or states. Yeah. Uh, so big moves. Yeah. And so what it taught us and what it, what it manifested in was I have a very, very close nuclear family. My mom, my dad, my brother, and I are incredibly tight-knit because we knew that in a year or two we were going to move and everyone around us was going to be gone, but we would always be together. Mm. Uh, and so in that we have, you know, a very open, loving relationship and, and humor is a huge part of how we interact as a family. Yeah. And that carried us through a lot of difficult times. Um, and, you know, I talk about my mom a lot with fuck cancer because it started for her. Yeah. Um, and I don't talk about my dad all that much because he's super private. But um, I will share one story that is dad in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, so my brother lived abroad when my mom first got diagnosed. So my dad and I really were her caregivers, um, you know, for day to day in terms of figuring out treatment and then taking care of her. Uh, and so we spent a lot of time together and, and as we always do, but a lot of time, emotionally charged time where we were empty and being strong for each other and for her and, um, and dealing with a lot. His, his, his wife, his the love of his life was fighting cancer. Yeah. Um, you know, which is something that, again, that a whole relationship I will never understand. And my mother, the, my, my mother was, and, you know, mm-hmm. and so, um, dad and I developed our very own language when it came to all of this. Um, and to this day, I obviously cancer is my day in and my day out. And I, I wear, I wear it often. And when somebody I love gets diagnosed, I feel it deeply. And, yeah. um, and so I still will call the house and my mom will know, can hear, you know, and I'm like, can I talk to dad? And he knows from my voice instantly. And sometimes I just need I just need to talk to him and whether that's about what's going on or nothing at all, it's because he's one of the only people who actually understands. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah. I'm, I'm grateful to have had a partner in that because I think it can be really difficult to be the caregiver alone. Mm-hmm. We so often focus on the patient and you know, rightfully so, we rally around them and we forget that there's often one or two people who are bearing that weight and supporting them. And we don't often think about taking care of the caregivers. Yeah, that's, that's huge. How old were you when your mom got diagnosed? I was 22. Wow. So I was 22 when I started the organization. Wow. Right off the bat. Jumped right in. (laughs) (laughs) Why wait? That's crazy. So now growing up, what would you, besides this monument, I mean, obviously this was the monumental moment in your life, in your life. What other, was there any other monumental moments like when you were younger, when you were a kid, you know, moving around, were there any monumental stories that stick out to you? that shaped who you are? <laughs> I'm sure there were lots of them. <laughs> uh, I was a, a major tomboy. Uh, My brother was the coolest person in the world to me. I wanted to do everything he did. 
I kind of still do. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, so I thought my, I, literally I copied my brother so much so that not only did I skip grades because I would want to, they would skip me because I would do his work as well because I wanted to learn what Rye was learning, but we used to sit across the table from each other like you and I are mm-hmm. and do our work. And so when I learned to write, I picked up the pen with my left hand because Ryan sitting across from me was writing with his right hand, which mirrored his left. And so I'm left-handed, mm. um, which we later found out was I'm actually right-handed. I'm ambidextrous. But I learned to write left-handed just because I wanted to be exactly like my big brother. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, so all those big brothers out there, be nice to your little sisters. They think you're, <laughs> they think you're awesome. <laughs> so that probably, that probably taught you a lot of give you a lot of other skills yeah. going through life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I feel so lucky to have a big brother. I think that it, as a female, it shapes you in such a different way. Yeah. You learn to not take yourself as seriously. You learn, you know, a whole different perspective. Yeah. Um, and you know that and somebody's always got your back. No yeah. matter what, like, when you need it, your big brother is always there. That's awesome. It's That's a good awesome. <laughs> That's a great feeling. Well, I wouldn't know, but I am the, I am the big brother, I guess. Is, is, so you better have your siblings back. <laughs> I do. I do. Um, my sister is, she she's married with three kids and a completely Crazy. different life. But we had a good time growing up. I took care of her. Good. I wouldn't expect less from you. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you, what's what's next? Where do you see yourself? What's, what's your vision? You know, we're going to keep growing. We're going to keep listening to the community and, and what they want and need. Um, and build for them because I think so often we get this vision of what we want to build and we get stuck Mm -hmm. on building our vision and reality I'm not doing this for myself I'm doing this for our community I am at their service and so I need to build for them what do they want and what do they need what do we anticipate they're going to want and need Mm -hmm. Um, and we also as we hit puberty and grow up as an organization are focusing a lot more having impact in the cancer space instead of just our space we impact our community in a big way and we will never stop doing that but I think it's our responsibility now to also look at the cancer space in general and see how we can be of help in a, in a larger way. Awesome. Awesome. I love that. So now that's, that's the organization's vision. <laughs> What's Yale's vision? You know, I, I, healthcare is, you know, health in general is something that's always been important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the intersection of healthcare and technology is incredibly interesting to me. And uh, I think you'll always find me in, in some sort of space around there. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. So we have one, uh, one, of the, one of my favorite questions is, what does live inspiration mean to you? Be brave and vulnerable. Hmm. I think that it, it's about, you know, obviously it's so trite to say be the change, which is one of my favorite Kind yeah. of what to be the change you wish to see in the world. Um, but I think that we like, as a, we as a society like to applaud bravery. And I applaud bravery. It's, it's fucking great. Mm-hmm. But what I applaud more is vulnerability because I think it takes so much more bravery to be vulnerable than to, to be strong. Um, yeah. and, and there is such a beautiful strength in authenticity and rawness and vulnerability. Yeah. It's so hard to be vulnerable. It's, it's, it's active work. You know, it's something that none of us are good at because... It's, it's not what we're taught. And from a young age, you're taught to be, you know, strong and capable. And, and I think you can be, I know you can be strong and capable and vulnerable. And you're such a, a better balanced person because of it. And so much of the time when we're able to be vulnerable and, and authentic, people around us step in and help in ways that they never would have been able to had they not known what we were going through. Yeah. You know, and it, it's one of my favorite Plato quotes is be kind for everybody you meet is fighting a harder battle. Hmm. And 
in my work, that's especially true. You know, the thing that we think is the most important or difficult or devastating thing of our day yeah. is often put into perspective when you realize what somebody else is going through. So be kind. Be kind to everyone. To everyone. Be grateful. I love that. So what would you say um, is the one thing that keeps you from, that you fight through to stay vulnerable? Because it's, it's not easy. It's an everyday conscious effort, I feel like. I fight through empathy. I've, you know, I, I share the worst days of people's lives with them every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you wear that and that you feel that and that shapes you. And some days you wish you could just throw walls up um, and, and not, feel, not feel it again and not go through this with, with people every single day. Yeah. Um, and I think that so much of why we're great is because our whole team is willing to be vulnerable and willing to, to share your pain so that we can help you through it. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the time, what, one of the things that a lot of, of patients notice first is that their doctors lack empathy and sympathy and, and person like humanity. Yeah. And that's because they've had to throw up walls um, to do this day in and day out because they give people every single day, they give somebody the worst news of their life. Um, and we work actively at not never getting calloused to what we are dealing with and what we do every day. Yeah, that's tough. It's active work. Because <laughs> <laughs> you got to feel it, but yet you got to like let it go at the same time. Yeah, you've got to cleanse at the end of every day. You go and, you know, and I actually talking of balance exercise was my, where I found my cleansing. When I first started the organization, I was mm. so obsessed with, with all this momentum and working and doing it. And I didn't want to lose a second. And so I wasn't, I wasn't making time to exercise. I was missing social functions. I wasn't making time to eat well. I was just obsessed with building this and helping people because mm. I would have loved some help on those days. Um, and then a dear friend of mine, who's actually my trainer, Nathan, uh, said to me one day, kid, you take care of people for a living. If you can't take care of yourself, how the hell do you expect to take care of anyone else? Mm. And so I promised him and I committed to him that I would take the time, the hour a day, whether that you know is is with him or on a walk or whatever or meditation or exercise without my phone and and recharging mm-hmm. you know and it turns out for me i like super intense exercise yeah because i'm focused only on what i'm doing in that moment i'm not you know on a leisurely run thinking about what i have to do that day i am hoping i don't pass out or throw up or get hit in the face <laughs> <laughs> and it it was a great way for me to just cleanse and be able to do it all again the next day wow that's that's amazing so are there any there's the cleansing but what about the prep the mental like you do any other rituals like meditation in the mornings or what helps you like prep for the day um i i do meditate when i whenever i can schedule it in i go through stages where i'm really good and stages where i'm not um but obviously meditation is something that's really really valuable and it and it got kind of a bad rap because we all think of it as like frou frou hippie shit but in reality, there's scientific data that shows you the impact of meditation. And it's mm-hmm. crazy. It's the only thing proven to lengthen your telomeres, which is uh, the cap on top of your genetic material hmm. or genetic. Um, and it, which your telomeres shorten as you get older. Yeah. And so lengthening it is, that's the fountain of youth, man. We haven't figured out anything else that can do that. So beyond all of the, you know, the, the effects that we can see and feel, that's like scientific data. And it's crazy. Uh, and so it's, we, you know, we have a challenge about rebranding it and getting people to understand it. <laughs> um, but I meditate when I can. Um, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I like routine. I don't get a lot of routine with my schedule. And so when I can get it, I'm, I, I feel so lucky. And I start every morning with the green juice and then exercise and then go into it. Mm. Um, and just that, that hour in the morning to have me time and to kind of set the, yeah. set the tone for the day. That's awesome. It's kind of interesting that you mentioned how to like rebranding because I totally agree. And it's kind of this new, like we're, we're seeing this whole wave of, of conscious media come in, uh, come across our generation and our, just the internet and everything now. And it's interesting, like how, how do you, how do you rebrand something like that? Because I feel like it ties back into what you've done with, with fuck cancer and like the, the positive, like deploy, um, deployment of, of the language and of the, of the perspective. You know, we're smart and we're getting smarter. Consumers are smart and they're, they don't want to be lied to and they don't want to be marketed to. We want to be spoken to. Mm-hmm. Don't lie to me about your product because yeah, I might buy it once because if you're lying, but I'll damn never buy it again. Yeah. <laughs> be honest. Tell me what its value is. And if that, if I deem that to have value in my life, I'm a customer and I'm a, I'm a great customer. Uh, and so we're seeing that a lot of companies are being more honest about what they actually are and who they actually are. And if, if who they are, isn't that great? Sometimes they're changing it, which is awesome. You know, mm-hmm. when we started seeing the EWG publishing what was in sunscreens, a bunch of companies changed their their ingredients because they all had carcinogens in their sunscreens. Yeah. And so it was this great, you know, when you lift the veil and when you have accountability, um, then we start to see great changes. But it's also about creating a brand that um, people resonate with and, and that comes from authenticity, tell the truth. <laughs> um, you know, show what value you have in their lives and let them decide if you are valuable to them. Yeah. We got obsessed with the idea of big, you know, just doing it all. We wanted a brand that did everything and everyone, you know, loved. And um, at Fuck Answer, we obviously knew we would never be that brand. Um, <laughs> but we did have to address the fact that people often asked us, you know, would you change your name? to be more accessible to the general public or some, you know, because we have great information. We have a great community, but some people might be turned off by our name. Yeah. You know, and I always joke that it was the easiest answer ever. Fuck no. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, while we may not be for everyone, I think that's great. That yeah. because the people that, that we are for our community, we are their family during some of the hardest days of their lives. And the minute we start trying to please everybody, we dilute our mission and our message and we become bland. We become vanilla. Nobody yeah. hates us, but nobody really loves us. Um, and so if we're not for you, I encourage people to go and find your cancer family, go and find your home, mm-hmm. go and find the people who will support you through this. And I'm okay if that's not us. Yeah. I mean, you're going to find your niche and your, your people and, and the people that you resonate with in the end. Yeah. And I think that's what creating a brand is all about is like, you're really creating an, a family, like you said, for people to be a part of. Yeah. And, and it stands for something so much more than just, you know, the logo you become, it's about the, the lifestyle and the, and the a huge emotional connotation. Yeah. What's the biggest thing you've learned through building your brand? Hmm, there's so many things I want to say. <laughs> um, I mean, authenticity, again, I, I always come back to it, but just tell yeah. the truth, you know, don't pretend to be something you're not. Be what you are and be proud of it and be authentic and transparent. Mm-hmm. Uh, be accountable uh, and and know that it's okay to say no. So mm. I think we get, you know, from, I know definitely at Fuck Cancer, we get approached all the time about partnerships or collaborations with other brands that at first I was so scared to say no because I was so excited that these huge companies or brands wanted to work with us. 
but sometimes they were off brand for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and the most powerful thing we do is say no. Often what you say no to is so much more powerful than what you say yes to because it doesn't you know, dilute your missing your message, but it also doesn't spread you too thin. Choose, yeah. choose your partners and be proud of them. Uh, and you don't have to say yes to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Figure out what aligns with who you are. Exactly. That's be awesome. Picky. Okay, let's go for a top three because that was awesome. I want to hear two more. Of brand, what I've learned building the brand. Mm-hmm. Fuck is our biggest asset and our and our you know hardest <laughs> challenge. Really? Um, you know we are so memorable because of, of this very blunt, emotionally charged statement. Yeah. Um, and people see it once and they don't forget it. But in the same time, corporate partners and sponsors become much more difficult because we have a swear word in our name. <laughs> um, so I would think long and hard. You know, people think that I thought up this brand and it was kitchen. I was so excited. I wish I could have said I sat long and hard and thought up this brilliance. It was, it was what I felt is what I said and put on a t-shirt. I never thought it would be a brand. <laughs> um, but if you are choosing your brand, think about it and think about where it's going to go and where it's going to live. You know, mm-hmm. if you're going to live in the digital space, you can get away with fuck. If you're going to live in, in print media or television, you know, how does it look there and what is it? And be, yeah. uh, be thoughtful about it. More thoughtful than I was. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, it still worked and it's, it sounds great. Wouldn't change it for the world. I love that. Um, I guess the one of the biggest things I learned was that it's okay to have a brand. You know, we are a charity that is known for our brand. And that's not happening a lot, yeah. you know, and that's not a bad thing. I think it's a great thing. We haven't, it's not like we've invested tons of time or money into it. It just so happened that we built something that was solid and simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't need to be huge and elaborate. Simple is simple and concise, man. That's all we got time for these yeah. days. Um, but putting time into what your brand is going to be and your, your, you know, your ethos as an organization uh, yeah. is important. Sometimes when you figure it out along the way, you don't, you don't make the right choices. You make the easy choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so early on, we sat down and we thought about what this company was going to be and what it was going to stand for. And, uh, and that was one of the, the best things we could have done was yeah. taking the time to figure it out and make hard decisions that at the time sucked. And I was like, but I want to do it all. <laughs> and we had to narrow it down and we had to be very specific in our goals. Um, because when, you, when you're specific in your goal, you're going to hit a wider net. When you try to hit everyone, you really hit no one. Um, so be specific and take the time to think about who you're going to be, not only the brand image, but the brand ethos. Yeah. No, that's great. I love that. I mean, building a brand, that's the one thing you guys have, uh, one of the big things that you guys have done really well and which makes you stand out and makes, you know, that's why you stand out above the rest is because people buy and recognize your brand and, and what you stand for. And I think it's made a huge impact on what you're doing. So it's been very helpful. It's <laughs> awesome. Um, one last thing, like what, what advice would you give um, to someone wanting to enter this, enter the uh, nonprofit space. I mean, we talked some, a little bit about that before, but just in general, what what advice would you give? I would say think long and hard about what you want to do and why, and then search long and hard for if anyone's doing that. Mm. Um, And if they are, and and they resonate with you, I would suggest joining and supporting, Um, help somebody be better, be a part of their, you know, the team, join that family instead of going and competing with them. Mm. Um, and if no one is, again, think long and hard, figure out what you want to do, um, and commit to it. Yeah. You know, I think so often we think that you just do it and if it's cool, it works. It's a ton of, it's a ton of work. 
you're going to spend a lot of time on this and the things that you never in a million years would have even thought about, you know, in running a company. Because even though you're a charity, you're still a company. And we may not be accountable to investors, we're accountable to donors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the big and one of the biggest things I can say and that I can hope is um, ditch your ego at the door. If you mm. want to start a charity, it's not about you. It's about the people you're helping. And so being willing to say that you don't have all the answers or that you were wrong and being willing to build for somebody else's benefit and not your own is one of the most important things we do. And if this is, uh, if it's always going to be about you, you're in the wrong space. Yeah. True that. I mean, I see that happen a lot in the nonprofit space. Yeah. And it's, it's unfortunate when we, you know, when uh, you, you focus on yourself instead of why you're actually doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, Remind yourself every day. <laughs> Ego check. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Great, it was very, very inspiring. <laughs> so speaking of the internets, where can we find you? Our website is www.letsfcancer.org. Awesome. And how about social media? We're at Let's F Cancer um, on Twitter and Instagram, I think. Awesome. And I'm just Yale on everything. <laughs> Perfect. (laughs) Well, thanks again. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was great. Thank you so much for checking out today's episode of Shop Talk Radio and joining me as we dive underneath the hood of the creative lifestyle. Again, I am your host, Nick Onkin. And if you enjoyed today's episode, then go over to iTunes and leave us a good review so that we can spread the word and inspire even more people in the world to live inspiration and share their inner creativity. Also, we'd love to see where you're listening to the podcast. So snap a photo on Instagram, hashtag live inspiration, or tag me at Nick Onkin so that you can inspire other people to listen wherever they are at. But beyond this, check out NickOnkinShopTalk.com to read articles on creating the creative lifestyle anywhere from emotional intelligence to any other aspect of creative entrepreneurship. I'll be also posting up editorial content in the form of visual essays that I get to create with my photographic eye and my craft and my career. Uh, But most of all, you get to join the underground creative community that we're creating. So thanks again for joining us. Now go share your creativity with the world. Uh